Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com. Enjoy. Not many people could get me to come in for a Saturday. This is one of them. They offer champagne. I'm just, I'm just taking it. I don't care what day it is. Although, if it had been Sunday football, I don't know. That would have been tough because I don't even go to my daughter's soccer games during Sunday football. Nice to have you, though. Good to be here. Um, I had David Spade on two weeks ago, and we were talking about when you did the the tattoo thing with him on SNL in like '95, and one of the great things that I loved about that was it was like. Wait, Sean Penn is funny? Does he is does he hide this from us? What's going? Like there was this whole other side of you, and I've always been fat. I felt like you've been in my life my whole life, but um, there are all these layers to you. But the the humor side is kind of the underrated layer because that was Fast Times was basically your breakthrough. Well, I, and you were hilarious in that. <laughs> for, well, I'm not going to accuse myself of being hilarious in anything, but I, I do find <laughs> myself um, ludicrous at times. Yeah, and and. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I have heard from people that I've spent time with that, um, that, that among the things I, I subconsciously keep private is any level of humor I might have, especially about myself. Yeah. Well, you'd, you'd had the very, starting like the mid-80s, this guy's a serious actor. This guy, he really takes, takes the craft, you know, to the fullest and all that stuff. But I always felt like, you know, I, I mean, I know that was genuine, but at the same time, I always felt like you could have done, what, two more comedies, something like that. Did you ever turn down a comedy you could have done? Well, that's a good question. Only in the sense that I was offered so very few of them, and because you get typecast. Well, it, it, I think what happened because I had done Fast Times at Ridgemont High very early on, and so on. I I th I think part of you know this quote unquote serious actor impression people because one. one does take hopefully what they do quite seriously and work hard to try to be better at it as you go along. Yeah. Um, yet at the same time as all of anything was being said, whether it had been, you know, he's funny or he's, you know, brooding. Um, once this, you are being talked personally about or assumed to be something for the first time in your life in a public way, it, it is certainly going to be a one true part of you, what's yeah. being said, and you don't want any more to be public. It, it kind of like, you know, the, there's always this idea that you want to take over, the get ahead of the narrative. And I, I never wanted to get ahead of the narrative by myself. I just wanted to say, okay, this is what's assumed. I'll let them see that much. And I'll hold the rest for myself and use it as I will as an actor and yeah. maintain it in my life. But it it was very, and still is, because I think, um, you know, I'm a guy who didn't speak in public places by right. you know, to in till I till after till, at all, not a word till after I was five years old. But I was very verbal within my family and a place wherever I was very comfortable. It wasn't as though I was unable to or couldn't string thoughts together. Yeah, you know, five year old thoughts, though they be. But I think once <clears throat> that 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 I was shy. And to 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 uh, to see other people get a degree of fame and have people talk about them, and certainly I had talked about famous people before I became someone that was in the public eye. It's still I, it once it was me. It was like wait wait that no 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 I didn't I didn't buy into this. I want right. to be an actor, but not this. And uh, it was kind of uh, horrifying. Well, and, I'm sure it got complicated yeah. that you started dating one of the most famous people in the world at the time. Yeah, that certainly, uh, certainly, yes, that that did complicate things, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if further at that time. Yeah. Um, going backwards, you grew up as a Hollywood kid. Your dad was a director. Yeah. And you're rising up with this whole awesome class of actors that um, a lot of them became really famous, but 
Tom Cruise is in there and Rob Lowe and Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez. Who, who else am I leaving out? But you guys all knew each other. Well, yes and no. I mean, I all the guys you just mentioned are younger than I am. And <clears throat> I was aware, I, I and I've heard stories about me and some of them that that didn't happen because oh, I hadn't met stories? them because yeah. I hadn't met them yet. So we all, we, some of the that group like the the, uh, the Sheen brothers and uh, Estev, uh, I knew them as the both as the Estevez brothers at the time. But uh, they, uh, the, I Emilio and I were good friends. Charlie was very close with my younger brother. Yeah. Um, Which one? With oh, Christopher. Chris, yeah. And. And and so them I knew, but again I think Emilio was one or two years behind me in school. And you know, at those ages, those are significant yeah. differences. And certainly from Charlie's age or Rob Lowe, those guys, they were they were much younger than I was. <clears throat> but we came from the same place, and then uh, they started working. I think soon after I did. And although Rob Lowe, I was aware of him in Malibu because he was a, a kid actor. Yeah, and he was the only one that we knew. Of, but I didn't know him until years later. But you guys are all showing up for the same auditions and stuff like that, right? No, I was all the. Uh, they would have been, you know, it, it was that. It was a that was f like a five year age difference between most of them. Oh, really? Is that me. much? So no, the people I was at auditions with would have been like you know Kevin Bacon in New York or or out here um, uh, Nick Cage who was younger than me, but he was he was starting around the same time. Um, uh, Helen Hunt, uh, I used to see at auditions. Really? I was kind of a, from that few years older than the, yeah. than the other group. So then Taps happens, and that becomes, there's these different movies in the early 80s where it's like these ensemble casts with all these people that the trajectory is headed a certain way. And I think Taps was probably the first one of those, but then The Outsiders happen and a whole bunch of them. Well, and to me what was significant about Taps was really before Taps. It was that when I first started to become an actor. I remember that, you know, reading about Nick Nolte, who I think was about 39 years old when he played the high school kid, Tommy Jordash in Rich Man, Poor Man. Oh, yeah. And was, I guess, the equivalent of James Dean to my generation of actor, you know, in that, in that moment. And when I read about him, and he was working steadily in the theater till he was in his late 30s, that was what I assumed would be the trajectory. Yeah, because nobody of our age group—by ours, I mean the group that I mentioned—you know, being kind of part of. No, no, no. There were no movies being made with leading young actors like that, and I don't think there really had been since James Dean. If you look at really what was going mm. on in the culture, it was a, a older. It was. It would have been like Richard Gere would have been the youngest kind of actor, and that's right. you know significantly older in that that relative to that age than I was. So you didn't look at it like, well, well, here comes my film career. You're going to work in the theater a long time, and that was great by me. And then Ordinary People happened, and that was Timothy Hutton. Yeah. And him becoming a star is what got studios interested to make movies around him. And so that led to taps. That led to, I think, this young generation Whiskey of actors because he didn't only, you know, uh, star in that movie, Ordinary People, he won the Academy Award for it. And all of a sudden, you had, you know, the movie people taking seriously this the, the possibility of younger actors again. And that started, and so I got in at a really lucky moment. You know, I think all of those of us that got to, you know, continue careers out of that time had a really lucky moment because two years before that, nobody was making movies we could have played leading roles in. Right. You didn't go for ordinary people, did you? Oh, yeah. I climbed the fence at Warner Brothers and snuck into Redford's office. And did you really? I, yeah, because I had no agent. I wanted that like hell. Yeah, I read the book <laughs> inside and out. And, um, yeah, that among others. Yeah, I was a. I, I knew all the best spots in the studio lots to climb the fence because I didn't have an agent. And sometimes people would kick you out, but a lot of times they'd sort of... Why didn't you have an agent? I, I could you just not, couldn't get one. I couldn't get arrested. I was the worst auditioner in the world. And, <laughs> um, just, just, I think I had a chip on my shoulder, too, about doing that. And I, I was doing a lot of theater, and I would try to get people to come down and, you know, see me play a character rather than hold some sides and, you know, pretend I knew what the material was. So you climb the fence, and you head toward Redford's office, and what happens? 
I sit down on a couch in the outer office. There's a few other actors there who are there legitimately, <laughs> who have appointments. And just before I'm, the first person that noticed me sitting there was Robert Redford, who walked by, and uh, and he 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 said, "Hi, how are you?" Kind of looked at me, and I thought, you know, in my mind, it was that that's right, that's right. I'm the guy you're supposed to cast. Yeah. Um, but instead, he was just very cordial and assuming I was among those on the list. And by the time they got through the three actors that had appointments, the uh, casting director's um, secretary uh, realized that I might not be you were an uh, imposter. supposed to be there. And I think I was asked to, you know. How'd back. you get taps? Because that was a big movie. Yeah. I had. I, I kind of gave it up here because in Los Angeles because I couldn't get represented and um, I'd, I had about 800 bucks cash and bought a $100 plane ticket to New York and put $300 down a security deposit on an apartment and um, not knowing what next would happen, uh, went, went with my, my, my high school buddy Joe Vitarelli, uh, who, who later became a great film composer. And we went to, to New York together, got a place, and three days later, uh, just as lucky as I could be, um, through through a, a, a friend, got sent up on an audition uh, for the lead in a Broadway play, and I got it. So I was in New York a whole three days before I got a lead in a Broadway show, a show called Heartland. Mm. And the they were casting taps at that time, and the casting director was a diligent theater goer. And she came and saw it and asked for me to come in and meet with uh, the director, Harold Becker, and Timothy Hutton, who at that point was cast and was, uh, I think, had a little bit of a say in uh, who, who he felt he w would want to work with in it. And uh, we hit it off, and uh, that's how it happened. It's, fu it's funny. You two and Cruz, yeah. in, uh, I mean, that movie was almost 40 years. But, and then Spicoli happens in Fast Times, and I just know you as the Spicoli guy. Right. And then when you started being in other rooms, like, oh, look at Spicoli. <laughs> but, I mean, that yeah. movie was such a, an important, influential early 80s teen movie. And it kind of predated what would happen with John Hughes and all those, you know. And then that character, people just loved it. It tapped into something. Yeah, which I think was really a, a tribute to Cameron Crowe and Amy Heckerling, Art yeah. Lentz and Don Phillips, those guys who, who really put that movie together. Because um, for me, it was, you know, it, it, at that point, it just seemed normal that these these movies were starting to happen. Yeah. You know, you didn't know if you were in something that was going to hit a, uh, a a common nerve, you know, whether it was a drama or a comedy. Or in that case, I was already in my early 20s. Yeah. And I, I had... I had been alienated from high school when I was in high school, so right. I certainly couldn't have spoken uh, um, with authority about anything that was going on culturally uh, at any time in any high school. So I certainly wouldn't have known that we were, you know, hitting a button with a lot of people. So then you get Bad Boys, and then then it really takes off because you're actually carrying Bad Boys, and I ride for Bad Boys to the death. <laughs> it's such a good premise, and I'm always amazed people hadn't seen it. It's like these two guys end up in juvie together, and they hate each other, and they have a real axe to grind, and it's going to go down for an hour. It's just great. Well, you know that you're getting to a certain age when they're making the sequel to a Bad Boys that already had been made that has nothing to do with the Bad Boys <laughs> that you made 20 years earlier and 30 years earlier than the, whatever it is. But usually it goes badly because if there's two movies that have the same name and you love one but the other's awful— and you get excited if you're flicking channels. But that one, I actually like the other bad boys, too. They went two for two with that one. Yeah, I didn't I, I didn't get to see. I hear that. I think the sequel just came out. Maybe I saw it. Well, there's the another. There's a third sequel coming oh, out. Oh, it's a third yeah. one. Yeah. So after bad boys, you get to, now you're in control. You get to start doing things you want to do. Then I was in a pretty unique position because, um, you know, based on the roles that I was able to get they turned out that people paid attention to at that time they were very different it yeah. was Spicoli so I think that I benefited from a perception of a kind of diversity of, of or, or an ability to uh, you know do more than one thing 
<clears throat> is there a competitiveness going on with all the young guys back then? Are you all measuring each other up? Everybody's getting these great roles, great movies. Is it like sports almost? You're sizing each other up? Here's, here's my answer to that question. Yeah. I remember doing a movie where uh, I did this movie, Mystic River, that Clint Eastwood directed. I've, and, I've heard of it. And the cast was pretty much people I had known or known of my entire acting career. Really? Because we were, you, you know, Kevin Bacon and I had, had done a, a, a worked in the theater in New York together. And, and he was uh, with your brother, and Kim too. Kim Robbins and, 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 and Marcia Gay Harden. They were all people that I either, you know, it was the timing was similar generation. And... I remember recognizing now everybody had kids. They'd already established their career. They were, uh, and there was no sense of competition. There was support. And I remember the good feeling of that. Mm. When I go back and I think of the earlier times, I never did well with uh, paying attention to competition. Um, When I paid attention to competition playing tennis, I tensed up and lost. If I wasn't just dancing, it was no good. Yeah. And so I didn't like sports for that reason. That's what led me out of sports. I loved the playing of them, but I hated the competition of them. And still today, it stresses me. Like, I love to watch, you know, Brady do something that is beyond um, imagination. But the stress as it's about to happen it dominates my experience. Well, that's why you like surfing. Yeah, exactly, because that's just you dancing with a wave. Yeah. But I, uh, what always gave me confidence and never, and and liberated me from ever feeling competitive is that it was never going to keep you from having a career if there were two, three guys in front of you who were at least as good, if not better than you. Yeah. What I was confident in is that. I would go to the theater or I would go to the movies and it was never that I thought I was so good. I just thought I was better than them. Yeah. And and I don't mean all of them, but enough of them that I'd have a career. Yeah. And that if I got a little better the next day, I'd be better than four of them, you know? And so it was a competition with myself and, and, and I, I look back on now, anything that I've ever done in my life where I invested in competition went wrong and didn't feel good. What's an example? Uh, I'm I, I, I'm going to go to something too personal too fast. Let's come back to this it. Is, no, come on. <laughs> Example, I'm trying to think. Competition. Well, I'll come back to it. Yeah, you might have to because it gets it gets it goes. Well, I remember Falcon point. the Snowman was you and Hutton, and at that point, Hutton was still the Golden Boy, who won the Oscar, but he's got all these, and that was basically you, yeah, you but, and him leading that movie. But it was more my buddy Tim and his buddy Sean yeah. uh, doing something that would not have even happened were it not for his involvement. So I was just, you know, at that point I was seeing myself as kind of like, oh, I'll be that guy. I'll be like the, the, you know, I'll get a lot of great parts as the buddy and never have to carry the damn thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> that one, I, I don't know how much of this was intentional, but at some point during the 80s, it became clear you were trying to have a career and try to do all these different types of parts. Because I think it could go one of two ways, especially with the young actor, where they're either just grabbing parts and trying to be the lead. You actually seem like you were more interested in, oh, that character looks interesting to me. And you were putting together kind of this this list of different types of people you could play. And I remember in that movie, I was like, wow, that's, that's Sean Penn? What's going on? He's like a different guy in this one. I always like when actors do that. I, yeah. I don't mean to kiss your ass, but I, no, but I, I, but I appreciate it. I think, though, that if I were describing that, it would be a very nonlinear because you, 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 you couldn't assume to get offered exactly the thing that was of interest to you humanly at that moment each time. You were going to get a good script or you were not going to get a good script. But as you decided between when I got in the luxury of being able to choose between things or to be able to do things and, and, and especially not have to audition anymore, which was yeah. for me, a, you know, standard humiliation. <laughs> um, when it became, you know, a career in essence was being offered to me. I think that you're, you, you go in this nonlinear way, but once you choose something, 
it kind of sets the course for what you will or won't do in the next thing because you're looking to tie a thread together in a, that is, so that as much as possible, it's like if your whole career were, were one movie telling all the stories of the things that you wanted to express yeah. through characters. It's like a, short, a book of short stories almost. Yeah, that's right, where you're looking for some kind of cohesion uh, in, in a through line in the, in the, that ties them all together. Because you never did, you know, the superhero movie or the, you know, the movie that had a chance to become an action franchise. or the, You were just, yeah. you never went down that road. Well, I remember the, the an actor who I'm a huge fan of, Joel Edgerton. Yeah, he's uh, good. He, he, he had a funny thing he said when he first came to Los Angeles. He said, I'm, I'm just trying to get through this without putting the underwear on the outside of my pants. <laughs> And, I, and, and I, I thought well, that articulates kind of what I've been trying to do, too. It seemed like you had just watching from afar that whole time, a really complicated relationship with fame where you liked all the things that came with all the parts you were able to do and all the different movies you were able to be in. But you didn't want the other stuff and the other stuff you're just dealing with. <clears throat> but you wished it hadn't been there. Well, I. I don't want to lead you into the section of our discussion that talks about the book, but this question leads me Let's to do it, it a little bit. So we we know that there have been, you know, we, we, we all have that moment where we're saying, gosh, it's just not like the old days in some way. Some, you know, where we look back with great nostalgia in mm. uh, periods. Um in a way that we might not look back with great nostalgia, you know, on the period of the founding fathers, if our skin was a little darker and we had a family history we were aware of. Yeah. All of these kinds of things. And, yeah, and we're, we're, we're very quick to be in the culture of complaint in the times within which we live and not see the things that have improved. And it's a struggle. I mean, I have my big struggle with those things. I like the culture of complaint. That's a good, I'm going to borrow that. But then when I look back, okay, I'm born in 1960, and I realized as I was writing these two books, yeah, and this character who was born at that time too, um, that it 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 is a kind of epoch that is a is in its own way what I call call the 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 generation of the ludicrous. You know, we had, I remember when I put out the first Bob Honey book, it was often considered absurdist fiction. And, I, and in a lot of ways, I went along with that. But, uh, you know, absurdist fiction had been done and very well. I think this is ludicrous fiction. Yeah. <laughs> it's ludicrous usage of language. It's ludicrous um, politics and ludicrous cultural uh, uh, um, invasions of kind of this, like what I do consider a kind of disease of celebrity and it, you can mark it from 1960 forward. It didn't start with the current administration where we were looking at things that were ludicrous. And I don't mean to, uh, you know, use that word glibly because it also includes horrifying things. The Vietnam War, uh, um, the those who opposed the civil rights movement, all of the horrifying things that we've seen and all the horrifying things that have culminated in the moment we're at, which is, of course, peak evil is what's happening environmentally. Yeah. So we can talk about what everybody's doing now and what this, but it really becomes a kind of look in the mirror era. And so I think that Growing up in the age of ludicrous <clears throat> is kind of where I define myself, um, and is and as an actor, it it took a long time to get to a place where you where I understood why I was making the choices, why I was diversifying the palette in the ways I was. Yeah, because you don't really know where things are going until. Uh, for me, it took a long time. I mean, it took, it, you know, what what for, what I would hope for someone to have occur in their early 30s. Um, you know, a basic level of, of of a matured sense of oneself and their surroundings. I think it took me in, well into my 50s.
What was the most unfair misconception about you from when you started dating Madonna all the way through the 90s that, that people thought about you? I think probably still is that with some notable exceptions that I didn't take note of them or their existence or their thoughts about it ever. Yeah. Um, and I think that I saw people working very hard to get my attention with their criticism, and uh, and and I found it, you know, uh, an avenue of, to, to to giggle at. So you, I get it. I see. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Um, do you think we treat with the attention we have with celebrities, which really, I mean, it goes back to the freaking 1930s, but the machine has really been in place starting late 70s, the 80s, it really took off and it's gone ever since. And we see over and over again with younger celebrities or child stars or people who become famous, like in that 19 to 23 range. And a lot of them have trouble handling it. Like, why haven't we ever tried to fix this? Well, there's, <clears throat> because I probably, I, 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 I don't want to get hung up on the part of it that is specifically celebrity. But I, I can say, for example, I, I just, um, the, the lady to whom this, this book, recent book is dedicated to and I uh, went, to, uh, just got back from Cuba. We went to, to Cuba last week yeah. for a few days. And you might be recognized there. They will value warmly what you do. But it is, it is just part of the fabric of, of that nuance of the exchange and the, and the, and, and the, um, the meeting of two humans. Yeah. And, it, and that passes rather quickly into their interest in what the, you, know, you, you like to eat as another person they want to be hospitable to. Yeah. And into you asking questions about them and how many kids do you? And it becomes just a kind of, you know, just real life conversation. You can in a lot of parts of the world, particularly in parts of the world where the stakes are much higher for people. Yeah. Um, and where they have not had the choices that we've had. There's less indulgence in in uh, something like celebrity and much more enjoyment of it. It's not, uh, there's not a kind of possessory feel that people have somebody or something or a particular hunger to be it. You know, you don't, there's, there's not, you know, in the Cuban culture, for better and worse, there's not a lot of upward mobility, whether you're, you know, famous for what you do or not famous for what you do. And so there's a kind of, um, you know, I think in the best part of that culture is the, you know, is, is the the common nature of people and, and there's a lot of warmth in that here around celebrity there's a lot of desperation and when we're talking about los angeles or new york there's there's a lot of active desperation and envy yeah and um and i think it creates a culture of a lot of self-loathing and and that's the the you know that's the good news <laughs> it gets a lot worse from there and and what it leads to finally is that when we when we take a poll of who is the country's favorite celebrity, we will have been part of creating that which gets elected president. <laughs> I figured you were ending on that one. Um, your career, you go like 20 plus years, and then you win the Oscar for Mystic River, and then you win again a few years later for Milk. I thought your attitude about winning the Oscar, it made me laugh. Like, you didn't take it seriously. Because for most people, it's like, this is the exclamation point of my career. I've, I've made it. And you just didn't see it that way. Well, I, I don't want to say I took it seriously or didn't take it seriously. It's, it's, what's very serious about it is that, you know, uh, when you make a movie, and movies wouldn't be made without uh, – you know, let's say marketing departments without all of the other elements of getting a movie out there and yeah. distributed. And that's studio people, yes. It's publicists, yes. It's also your fellow actors kind of going out there on the hump, you know, the director, the producers. And a lot of effort is put in to movies getting these nominations or getting these awards by a lot of people you care about. Yeah, And when it's on... You know, part of it is on in support of you 
uh, as part of that that movie the biggest reaction you can have if you win the damn thing is relief it's like okay they didn't waste their time they didn't you know yeah everybody's happy i can go home now um the you know i i i absolutely understand the excitement that that people can have about all of that stuff but i had remembered and you know the, the academy i suppose of, of which i never i don't i don't think i'm even a member of the academy <laughs> but uh you know so if people want to get mad at me they can but it it is as true as not when somebody once said uh, to a winner of the academy award welcome to the club of mediocrity because so often that's the case. Right. And then there are these years where I, I'm no different than anybody. I mean, when, for example, when, when what must have been a unanimous decision and Robert De Niro won for Raging Bull, it's a triumphant moment in the arts. Yeah. But too often, um, you know, some bad, you know, when I say TV movie, I got to be careful because my reference is what TV used to be, right? So when some bad TV movie yeah. wins best picture or some saccharine wink at the audience performance wins best performer, actress or actor, y- y- you can't help but just turn on forensic files yeah, and, and decide to have a good time that night. <laughs> what, what part, since you became a working actor... What part have you been the most jealous of that somebody else did where you're like, oh, man, what an awesome part. I would have loved that one. Every part that ever happened under the direction of John Cassavetes from before I was an Oh, actor. wow. Yeah. That's your guy? I think that, you know, I, and I almost worked with John and got to be very friendly with him near the end of his life, and then he, he, got, he got too sick to make the film. Uh, but when I go when I think about what would get me today excited about being an actor, it would be to work in movies with a director like that, um, taking on the subjects that he took on with the, the humor and yeah. the wildness of, of, the, of the true human soul and all of it that was particularly unique to, to his movies. You've had some good ones, though. You, early Fincher... Well, 97. I've had, I've had what was that? Tell me, tell me Fincher's story. Tell me a Fincher story. <laughs> Did you know? Uh, Did you know this was guy was going to be one of the guys? Because it, it hadn't totally happened by when you were making the game of them. Well, David Fincher, who I cannot claim to know very well. You know, I, I worked a short time with him and, and in a friendly way. Yeah. Um, we have. We never uh, met up for a beer or anything like that. Um, and then I've run into David, you know, uh, I mean, a handful of times since then. But he, I think he, his presence was one of somebody that was so um, in possession of his own imagination and the skill set to render it. Yeah. That he had a reputation that preceded his success. In other words... It was never going to be stopped. It wasn't. It wasn't like I look at him now as what he's become. He he was that before he made a movie. Yeah. So he was a very he's a very impressive guy, a, a guy like Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, who I I think yeah. is as great as any filmmaker that anybody's ever seen. You know, who's around who I, you know, you know I I think when I was answering the question related to John, it was about the roles. And the and the it was and when I think about the roles, I think about who was going to create something for their own surprise, and I was going to get to surprise myself within it. And if we surprised ourselves well, it was going to work. And if not, it would work on the next one. Yeah. Would you learn from Clint? Oh, calm. And I still haven't learned it well enough. He, uh, he has. See, he is a guy who I think for whom filmmaking is such a, 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 a effortless part of who he is. Yeah. And his jazz background, I think, is where I find it most clearly reflected because 
you, you, you know, he's kind of famously ready to move on after one take. And, and right. I think he's a big believer in the magic of the, of the first improvisation, you know, in, in jazz or the first take and what the actors do together and the first time. He doesn't like to belabor things. And that's its own magic when it works. Uh, and, <clears throat> but you, you, you take that and you take somebody like Alejandro, well, for that magic, I mean, he's going to, He's going to, the only person he's going to torture more than he does you is himself. I mean, he will work as hard as, he will make sure he works harder than anybody else. There. Yeah. So you always feel uh, in solidarity. Who and, would you rather work with out of those two styles? What is more fun for you? Oh, <laughs> that puts me in an awkward social. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to answer. I would say that I was Depends really, on the person. I was very lucky to work with both of them. Yeah. Do you like being able to craft what your vision of the part is or if you feel like the director has it in his head, everything lined out, you're just going to trust him and do what he wants? Like, Or does it depend on the movie? I think the the second description is a description of a very bad director. Yeah. Um, you have each person, whether they become an actor or not, has an actor inside. Yeah. And... There's a kind of music that you hear that that in in your body that that takes you to a character, um, you know, at at your best more fully than at other times. Let's say, and for a director to assume that they know all the beats of that music, and therefore decide which of those beats they want to use as their clay, um, is a misread, and. And you know everybody's music changes every year they 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 live. Yeah. So you know why, which is why you'll see in some actors and actresses big surprises very late in their career, or you'll see something happen where somebody, you know, Gary Oldman's an interesting kind of tale of right. of this. Gary Oldman was without a question, one of the actors of our young generation. And everyone knew it. And be, until he played Winston Churchill, just because of a variety of whatever was going on in his life, choices he'd made, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that most younger audiences flat out were going to miss ever really knowing the, about, not that he ever stopped working, but he was not doing... Uh, darkest hours or something. Yeah. And I remember being, you know, just I had never thought about it in this way. But when I saw him in Darkest Hours, this kind of thrill comes into your cells. Wait a minute. Yeah. This generation gets to see the Beatles play. <laughs> I thought that they weren't going to, or they never even heard of the Beatles. And, and so there are. So a director, a director has to, you know, be aware of time and change and, and, and what an actor is in their heart is kind of a searching thing and, uh, and they shouldn't be fully anticipated. You never worked with Paul Thomas Anderson or Tarantino? No. Uh -uh. Any reason? Well, uh, Quentin asked me to do one movie uh, at one time that it wasn't for me uh, to do. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. What was the movie? Um, it was one of the parts in Pulp Fiction. Um, what? But but see, I wasn't upset that I had done it. I thought it was much more fulfilled by the person that did it. I don't yeah. want to say what part and get into those yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah, you got your whole action. But, uh, but, um, I'm just going to think about Paul, it for the rest of my life. Paul and I talked about a couple of different things, and I I remember he made the, that terrific uh, movie with Adam Sandler. Yeah. Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, and he came to me to talk to me about one of the parts, but it wasn't Adam Sandler's. And I read that script. I said, sorry, I'm, I already fell in love. I, I fell in love with the part you've cast. Yeah. And, you know, let me know if Adam Sandler dies, and I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically so. Um, well, he's tight with your brother, too. Who, who's that? Oh, Paul. Michael. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They'd work he's together. He's in Boogie Nights. Nobody realizes he's he, the he, studio he guy with Dirk Diggler. Boogie yeah. Nights and Heart Eight. And, yeah. then, uh, and then his wife, my, my sister-in-law, scored Magnolia. Yeah. yeah, Amy Mann being your sister-in-law is an underrated random fact. She's a very talented woman, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Boston's own. Yeah. Um, we didn't talk about Nicholson. What would you learn from him? 
You spent a whole, he, you directed him. You did a whole thing. You you were with him every night. I, re, I remember reading the stories back in the day, but you actually like kind of bonded with him. He's, um, the, you know, the, this, 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 this uh, figure of speech is uh, overused, in, I, I think. But when, when one says they broke the mold. Yeah. I'm going to go on record. There will never be another Jack Nicholson. <laughs> I think it's a fair one. Um, because I believe that, you know, and this is it might sound like a flamboyant comment. I believe he has got um, the mind uh, uh, of James Joyce. I mean, he has his a brilliant, a again, I'll use that word linear, linear slash nonlinear thinker. Yeah. Um, wordsmith, uh, a, you know, a great reader, very, very literate, among the most caring people I've ever met, certainly the most supportive and most significantly supportive in terms of everything that I got to do with my career from the time I worked with him. Wow. Uh, he, he, you know, he's, again, an actor. There's not, there's no such thing as a better actor. Um, and, you know, arguably uh, among the great actors, he is um, over and over again was, is the most charismatic film presence we've ever seen. Um, and the, and, and as, you know, true a, a person as, as you'll ever run into. So there's, there's, there, well, whether you're talking professionally, creatively, humanly, um, I, I can't call attention to all the, the things of him that I appreciate other than to, to say that I feel, you know, an awful lot of gratitude, uh, for having had him, you know. It's intimidating to, to direct somebody like that. He doesn't let that happen. Yeah. He is your soldier. Really? I mean, if you're a director, he's the guy that's there to make you better. So what's going on with, you might be retired from movies, but now you're not. You came back. You're, you're not done acting. Well, here, here's what I can tell you. Oh. That if re it requires more than two days in a less than stellar location with a less than stellar paycheck, and a less than stellar script and director, you should, and you see me doing it, you should assume I'm miserable. <laughs> um, you, you know, the, the other way of saying that is if it were a couple of days on a great thing for a load of money in a great place with a great director, I'd, I'd love to do that. But, but stopping what feels like the movement of my life to do that for a living, uh, I don't want to do anymore. I don't want to wake up, put somebody else's clothes on and dig up stuff from the inside of myself and do it according to a schedule. And, and I don't think that's what happens. So I think you're getting your creative Jones from these books. No question about you've that. You've thrown, ever since you started throwing yourself into your novelist career, all of a sudden you don't care about acting anymore. It's you've, you've, it's basically, I used to write columns forever and now I love doing podcasts and I don't write anymore. And it's, it kind of shifted my brain to this different place. And I wish I wrote and I don't, but I'm just kind of over here now. And I don't know if I'm ever going to go back there, but I feel like maybe that's what you're, what's going on with you. Well, I, you know, of course this will be misinterpreted uh, as, 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 as an absence of appreciation for the, the luck that I've had and what I've been able to do in film and as an actor and, and, and what it's given me, you know, in terms of being able to make a really good living and being able to have a, a lot of freedom and all of those things. The part of it that started to work negatively on me and started to be not enjoyable, I think it took it's, it getting to the point where it was a prison that I had to break out of for me to do what I'd always wanted to do. Yeah. which was write a novel. I was going to procrastinate my way into hard time and then write to break out of that prison. <laughs> and I think that, that writing these books is a combination of well, that drive to, not, to, to be able to express myself freely without a studio, without anybody I was responsible to because the, the greatest thing about writing a novel is that yes, they can they can do well or not do well. So far, the first one did really well. Yeah. The second one's coming out. We'll see what happens. September 10th. Yeah. And but 
by the time we, you know, you call, you cost nobody any money while you're writing. Nobody is taking a leap of faith in you and sometimes not understanding what you're really trying to do and therefore disappointed even when you feel you've succeeded in it. Like you, you can make a film and you described, a, you, you know, they asked you to make a bird, if you really were going to make a bird and you said yes and they right. were looking for a swan and you made a falcon or vice versa. You know, you misunderstood each other. Yeah. And so you disappoint people or you alienate people or this movie is this is this movie's too graphic or this movie's too th- and, and you just get censored and censored and censored and you bleed yourself over the money it costs and 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 the pressures that come on to you with a book by the time other people are investing in it they know exactly what they're investing in and they're all adults and so on you're not you've finished it yeah and then you say what do you think and if a publisher likes it they're your partner and there be your partner in failure or success, and nobody, there was nobody felt misled. And the liberation of that, to not disappoint friends or get in, you know, get in, or even have to consult, and, to, and, and most of all, to not, to, to now be completely free of any self-censorship. Because well, you're, you, you have to censor yourself as a, as a screenwriter the moment you write a paragraph that's going to cost an extra $20 million because of what it's showing. Yeah. I can, I can write, I can write this into the, a novel into the, it doesn't matter because it doesn't cost any more to have a bigger imagination. I have two thoughts. First one is it sounds like when, when people retire in sports, a lot of times it's not because they're washed up. It's just the process of getting ready to play another season. That's what they get scared of. Like the summer, knowing that oh shit, now I gotta spend. Three yeah, I'm both. I'm washed shape. up and terrified <laughs> no, you're of another not season. Up, no, that but it's that off season freaks them out, and it becomes such a big burden to them. They just don't want to go through it anymore. That's one thing. The other thing is, I totally get what you're saying with the book. I wrote a 700 page basketball book once, and That's a lot of writing, 270 thousand words or something. But um. But you get in this mode where it's just you and the book and you're the only one who understands it and you're trapped in it. Nobody can help you. And I kind of liked it. I, I'll never do it again because I, I almost like went over the cliff with it. But um, but I totally get like all I did every day was just think about this book. And I was the only one who knew where all the pieces went. Yeah, but you also had to get your facts straight, right? I did. I had to do everything. Wrote. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. I have no obligation to facts in my novels. But when you're writing a novel... It all has to make sense in some way, right? You're the only one who knows all the jigsaw puzzle mm. pieces. That's what I missed. Yeah, well, I it, it, so much so for me that it, that it actually is part of the fun, you, you know, like because it's the same for me in most conversations. Yeah, where even with people who know me well, they will say, "You know, I had no idea what you were talking about." <laughs> right. In most of the conversations that I have. And I've been accused of, you know, talking in riddles and so on. When I think that I'm being absolutely clear, when I write, I then, after I back off from what I write, I back off and I look at it, I go, nobody's going to understand this. And now I can see it. Yeah. So it is true of me what they said. But now I can sit there and I've got, I, I don't have to think hard or let my mind be free to create what I want to create because it's created now I, I'm going to juxtapose it. Now I'm going to clarify it, you know? So I, I kind of do two significant versions when I write a book. I say, like, I've written so many books. Now my second book, but in both cases, one version uh, that's mine. And the other version is the same, all the same writing, but I've taken lines from here and put them over here. I've yeah. put a period here, and I put the, it's, it's just putting it in an order that allows someone else in. And these still challenge that, and I like, that, I like it that way, but I do make sure that by the end I, I let some trusted people read it without telling them what to expect. Yeah. And if they can tell me uh, that they read what I intended, you know, they tell me, about, okay, I say, what's it, what, what is the book? And I hear back, and I know it can be understood. That's enough for me. I still think from a career standpoint, you need your equivalent of the verdict. Well, that was uh, my equivalent of verdict. Well, here's the funny thing. I remember that being like the older, like the uh, the the elder Paul Newman. It wasn't and even elder. It was but, just but, older. What, what I was going to say is 
I remember it that way because the age I was when I saw it. Yeah. He might have been younger than I am now when he did it. And so um, so when I think of that, I still have the old perception, which means like you're talking about something 20 years from now. <laughs> and uh, and that's how. I think what was so key know, about when he did that was he was finally saying like, I'm at a different point in my life and I wouldn't have played this part five years ago. But now I'm just old enough that I can play this part. And it was like a different side. And you should win the Oscar. But Yeah. Um, and, and And also, again. A wonderful script and a, a, it's an amazing a great movie. director. That's a good one. Sidney Lumet. Yeah. So you're surfing, you're writing books. Not surfing enough, but I'm I'm writing books. I'm, I'm we didn't a, talk. How old are your kids now? My son's 26 and my daughter's 28. How's that going? It's going great. FaceTime? Do I, they FaceTime you? Well, I see them quite a bit. In fact, I just directed both of them in a movie. So that, that's uh, that's... The last, I did that right after I finished the book. Are your kids more like you or their mom? Well, I, what I like to say is um, they got my looks because their mother kept hers. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, they, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I got two beautiful, talented, smart children. Um, and they've got pieces of both of us in them. And, uh, and, and I, yeah. And so I yeah, just. Well, how do you yeah. think they describe you? But you got to pick to their them. friends. It depends on the day. Depends on <laughs> the fucking day. dad. Jesus. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, good luck with this book. It is called Bob Honey Sings Jimmy Crack Corn. Comes out on September tenth. Well, how much? How much? How many shows are you doing? You're doing David Spade. I I'm gonna go do David Spade's show. Put right, a tattoo right on him. He still has the other one. I'm doing it. I am. He showed me it. He I'm, still has it. I, I just gave the kit back for them to take it over. It's such time. a great story. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna. T you know, I, I he knew I had a tattoo parlor before I did that, which I called Sean's Okay Tattoos, <laughs> and it, it was because they were just okay. And and and, and I'm out of practice, so I'm gonna go do a less than okay tattoo on him right now. All right, and we welcome you on the Patriots bandwagon. I know you like championship winners. Thank you. Thank you.